Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. I wanted to start with a quick uh, where we're at, because the the CDC dashboard uh, that that I peek at every few days um has had the lines for deaths and hospitalizations pointing up and to the right for about six weeks now at, at a rough calculation uh, recorded hospitalizations because of COVID-19 are 80% higher than they were at the start of August. Um, how how would you characterize the, the current surge in cases? Well, much like you are, and that is, they're up. They've been going up consistently. Cases have been going up now since very early July. So we we know we're in a, um, you know, I hate to use the word surge because it conveys that we're similar to where we've been in the past, but we certainly are in a swell of cases. Um, I don't think we have any idea or really appreciate how many people are getting covid and not going to the emergency room and not having to be hospitalized and dying. But there's an awful lot of COVID out there and a certain percentage of these folks who don't get real sick, but they still go on to develop long COVID. So we're still in a significant part of this pandemic, although nothing compared to previously, uh, the previous summers, particularly two summers ago, but even last summer. So again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I think that it all depends upon your perspective. We're in a much better case position than we have been previously in terms of even hospitalizations and deaths. Still, we're having a lot of cases. We're still having too many hospitalizations and they continue to go up and we're tragically still having too many deaths. Um, With that in mind, how would you be thinking about the timing of the new booster that's available? My understanding is there's kind of a balancing act. The longer you go between boosters, the stronger your antibody response to the booster when you get it. On the other hand, if there's a lot of COVID out there and you're out in it, uh, you you might want to boost your immunity right now, even if it's only been three or four months since your last shot. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of things that go into one's calculus in terms of the timing for this. Clearly, if you've recently gotten over COVID or if you've recently been vaccinated, I would probably wait a little bit. Um, We suggest that you wait at least three months after having had COVID to get another booster. Um, If possible, you might want to drag that out longer because, as you said, if you wait a little bit longer, you get a better boost or a better immune response to the next vaccine. Now, we don't really know that 
there's any advantage of waiting beyond five or six months. That is, is seven or eight months better. There's really no evidence for that. But you want to at least not be doing uh, a booster or another dose of the of the new vaccine on top of the previous your previous infection or a previous boost. So, generally speaking, I think you should look at what is your risk. If you're, it's an easy decision. I think that if you're traveling soon or you're going to be in circumstances where you're at high risk for getting infected or higher risk for getting infected, then I would err on the side of doing it closer to your last uh, vaccine or your last episode of COVID. If, on the other hand, you're in a fairly controlled situation where you can wear a mask in situations that are less comfortable or less safe and that you can really avoid to a large extent getting infected with this virus, then you could put the vaccine off for a few weeks or maybe a month or even longer if it's been recently since you've been vaccinated. So let me give you a concrete example. I'll give you myself. I got the uh, the new booster, the bivalent booster in last October, and then I got a, another jab with that in early April. I'm going to get my COVID vaccine, if I can get an appointment, uh, probably at the end of this month, maybe the first week of October, right in that period of time. That'll be just between five and six months. And my thinking is that I want to, I can control pretty well whether I'm not, whether or not I'll be in a risky situation. But there's still so many cases out there that I really don't want to wait too long. And I, I don't want to sort of be the last person in the foxhole that gets killed before the armistice. So that's my thinking right now. Um, so I think for most people, you're looking at later this month or October for another jab. All right. Uh, our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. He is here to answer your questions. The phone number 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your Corona calls. Uh, while our callers are stacking up on the phone lines, Dr. Swartzberg, I want to go over a new piece of published research with you. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a uh, pretty big study looking at COVID cases in Stockholm, Sweden, and how likely they were to produce a long COVID diagnosis based on when they occurred in the pandemic. The authors inferred that during a certain period of the pandemic, people who had COVID had the original strain, the wild strain. In another period, they had the, the alpha strain, uh, the, the variant that caused the boom in cases in Italy. Um, in another period, it was Delta, and in another period, it was Omicron. If, if they had a genomic sequence on the virus, they categorized it that way, but mostly it was inference. And they came to the conclusion that there's been a, a steep drop in the likelihood of getting long COVID after a COVID diagnosis, dropping from, in their estimation, 1.3% of cases with the wild strain to 1% of cases with the alpha strain to half a percent of cases with the Delta strain to two-tenths of one percent of cases in the era of Omicron. Um, those percentages seemed kind of low to me overall, so I was curious what you thought of the, the quality of the study. Yes, it was a, a, it was a, a reasonably done study. 
Um, there are considerable number of quibbles with how they did it in terms of methodology, but it's it's certainly a study worth paying attention to. What stood out to you and certainly stood out to me and has stood out to many of co my colleagues is the very low percentage of people with long COVID. And so I think we have to put a question mark about what that means. Nevertheless, I think there is, I think their findings about alpha, the, the ancestral strain alpha and delta causing more long COVID than Omicron and its subvariants, that's consistent with what we've been seeing. That is, there have been several studies now, quite a few studies that have suggested that there's less risk for long COVID with Omicron and its subvariants than with its predecessors. The caveat about that is that it's not the same population that COVID is infecting now. Right now, and for a long time, uh, since really Omicron, 95% of the population has immunity, either from vaccine or from infection or a combination of those two. And that wasn't the case, certainly with the wild type where 0% did, and was not really the case with alpha and less the case with delta. So I think that we're changing the rules of the game as we go along, and it's hard to know with certainty whether there's less long COVID because the virus has changed or there's less long COVID because the immune status of our population has changed. And I think the answer is probably some combination of that. So how should people be looking at this right now? I think that the, the scientific evidence is that Omicron is less a threat, probably. Um, for what reasons? We're not sure whether it's population immunity or something about the virus. Um, but it's still a threat. And that is long COVID is a real entity, and you can certainly get it with Omicron and its subvariants. I did wonder about possible data biases, too. Like, I would imagine the very first cases of COVID, um, those people got a lot more scrutiny from diagnosticians, uh, both during the course of their illness and afterwards. So because of the increased attention, might have been more likely to get a diagnosis of something like long COVID. Uh, than, than people years later when, when COVID has become widespread and more routine? I think that's a, um, a very fair question you're raising. That um, certainly is a bias in, in, the, in the study. It's, it's so difficult to know, Brian, in terms of um, what, uh, what we're talking about here. The, the definitions of COVID, of long COVID, differ um, depending upon who the researchers are. And the response from the public differs over time. So there's there's a whole bunch of biases that go into these studies and trying to understand long COVID. And I think the best, again, we can say is that it's a real entity. It can be devastating to be some people. Um, and so it's it's it remains a significant concern. It also seems to me like these long COVID studies, too many of them are treating long COVID as like a binary, like either you have it or you don't. But in that bucket, uh, you know, it could be anything from a 
persistent but barely annoying cough that goes away in a few months to being completely incapacitated by chronic fatigue-like symptoms, exercise-induced malaise, and, and so forth on, on a nearly permanent basis. That's right. It's, you know, it's, this is, we're seeing a microcosm of the history of medical science and how we learn. And that is, we begin with description and we describe what the entity is and we give it a name and then we look for a scientific basis for trying to explain that. And we're really at the point now where we have a fairly good description of the entity, but it's not a binary entity, just as you mentioned, and that's a terribly important point. And we're just starting to scratch at the surface of understanding what the biological basis of a lot of these symptoms will be. And I suspect there are gonna be a variety of reasons why people have prolonged disability from COVID, some profound, some very mild, and everything in between. So I think it's going to be, um, until we have a, a real biological mechanism or mechanisms, it's going to be very difficult. We're going to be sort of wallowing in this fog right now, as we are right now. I wanted to go back to your, to, to our, to the point you were making before, and that is that Early on in the COVID pandemic, not only were the viruses different, not only was the population immunity different, but because the population immunity was either nil or very very low, a lot of people who were getting COVID in those, year, those years um, were getting really severe COVID, many more hospitalizations, many more deaths. And we know that long COVID is more common the more severe your episode of COVID is. And we don't understand exactly why that may be, but that seems to be a fairly consistent observation as well. Now, that doesn't mean that you can get COVID and it's a very mild case and then have long COVID. You certainly can, but you're more likely to if you wind up being hospitalized and particularly very sick with it. All right, I've monopolized your time for long enough. Let's let some of our listeners get a crack at you. Uh, Bill is the first on the phones from Daily City. Good morning, Bill. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm calling regarding the immune response to COVID when one gets Paxlovid. Uh, two weeks ago, I came down with COVID and I was able to start taking Paxlovid within three days. And within three doses, the symptoms almost disappeared. Uh, of course, I was grateful for that, but I'm wondering if the uh, immune response of my body was then rendered useless because Paxlova took care of it. So my body wasn't really fighting COVID anymore. That's a great question, Bill. Um, and people have been um, addressing this question, particularly from the perspective of rebound after Paxlovid or rebound after just having COVID and not taking Paxlovid and wondering whether maybe Paxlovid blunts the immune response somewhat because it works so well in terms of stopping the viral replication. The good news is that we're not seeing that. It looks like people who develop rebound from COVID, um, excuse me, rebound from Paxlovid, or rebound while taking Paxlovid, let's be precise here, um, that their immune response after they're over the rebound appears to be very good. 
Um, the studies that have looked at people who don't get rebounded, who take Paxlovid, um, their immune response appears to be comparable to people who didn't take Paxlovid. So I think that bottom line here is that we don't have evidence to suggest that taking Paxlovid is going to blunt your immune response and make you more susceptible in the future. It appears to be equivalent to what you would get if you didn't take Paxlovid. So this rebound phenomenon that people get with or without Paxlovid, uh, we still don't understand too well. Super helpful. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Well, Schwartzberg. Let me grab our next one from the inbox. Uh, Julie wrote in with a lot of questions, and among them, she asks, if you are already on metformin for prediabetes or diabetes, are the studies showing it might help prevent serious COVID, or are those studies only on people who started metformin once they were infected? Well, the best studies we have with metformin really center around if you take it after, with, during an, the acute phase of COVID within the first several days, that there's some evidence that it prevents long COVID. And what we don't have is data, really good data to tell to answer Julie's question, and that is, if you're taking metformin chronically, will that also help prevent you from getting long COVID? The answer is, we don't know yet. Um, it's a terribly important study. People are looking at that now, and, and I would be anxious to get those results. I'm also anxious to get results of um, more trials with metformin in terms of how people do in terms of preventing long COVID and whether it does have a salutary effect on the acute course of COVID. It does seem like um, <laughs> there's not enough research firepower being aimed at it, given the significance uh, of those early results. Like it was the steepest reduction in long COVID from anything that's been tested to date. And it is a drug that is cheap as dirt, widely available and very well understood to be uh, well tolerated by the people who take it. And um, with the exception of some gastrointestinal side effects, no real serious side effects. It's a very attractive drug from, for those reasons that you mentioned, Brian. Um, again, you and I have talked about this in the past. I really would like to see those results duplicated. And those studies are ongoing and we should have a series of studies actually coming out within the next oh, half year or so that really will give us a much firmer answer. The question right now is <clears throat> some doctors feel that taking metformin along um, with an acute case of COVID um, is not an unreasonable thing to do and are prescribing it. Other doctors are, are saying, let's wait until we have a little more data before we really make that decision because we don't have a, a, a really firm place we're standing on. Got it. All right. Uh, that is a to-be-continued on Metformin. Let's go to Napa for our next call where Matt is on the line. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Yeah, I called a few months ago. You might recall it about the Cleveland Clinic study that tried to measure transmission rates comparing the vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. And the rate results showed that the vaccinated actually transmitted more. And your guest mentioned that it hadn't been peer-reviewed which is true, and I'm just wondering, I've got a couple questions, whether that peer review process is ever going to happen, and it's seemingly kind of an important question. Uh, your guest has also 
told before that uh, there are other studies. That, and so factcheck.org criticizes the Cleveland Clinic study for being a population study and not a double-blind controlled study, but it's kind of a unique type of study since double-blind usually takes a single drug or an agent for a specific condition. And here we're trying to measure transmissibility. Um, so I would like to know if there was another type of study that uh, tried to measure this in a different way that the factcheck.org is referring to, and um, whether we're ever going to hear real results from the Cleveland Clinic study being peer-reviewed. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Um, I haven't seen anything further from that study that you had mentioned, um, so I can't uh, comment on that. If something was published in a peer-reviewed journal, I just have missed it. Um, the the um, well, wait, Dr. Schwartzberg, that, that does raise an interesting question. Something gets put out there as a preprint. It goes through the peer review process, and, and the peer review says, "No, there's problems with this. <laughs> we we can't sign off." Um, what what happens? Does it does it just stay out there forever as a, a preprint? No, is it I retracted? Think, right. Um, we're all trying to figure out how to live in the preprint world now, since COVID, primarily since COVID. Um, I think that articles like um, I'm not necessarily think, saying like the one Matt mentioned, but there's so many articles that get into the preprint literature and then never get published for, for myriad reasons. And for those that don't get published, I think that from my perspective, we just move on and don't pay attention to those um, because there must have been significant problems with them and they, they didn't get through a more robust process. Um, again, I don't know whether the paper that Matt's referring to did go did make it through the preprint process or not, excuse me, the um, peer review process or not. But I, I did want to comment on um, why, why that data doesn't seem to stand up, the data that Matt's mentioning from the Cleveland Clinic, doesn't seem to stand up with what we're seeing with vaccines. What we're, what we're seeing, what we saw earlier on with the vaccines, with uh, the uh, alpha and delta variants and the ancestral variant, was that the vaccines, at least for several months, did prevent transmission because they did prevent infection. It was with Omicron, with its tremendous properties of immune evasion, that is, it could evade the immunity we get from vaccine or previous infection, that we, that we saw that the vaccines gave us really very short protection against getting infected and transmitting. Now, they still offer that. So, for example, if you get this new um, uh, formulation of the vaccine that just was approved, it's likely going to give you pretty good protection against getting infected and spreading the virus for maybe one or two months. Not everybody, but for a lot of people, it's going to help prevent that. Where it's really going to play a role in is in terms of hospitalization and death. Um, it's really going to offer significant, we believe, offer significant protection against that. We've also seen studies that have looked at people who have gotten infected, um, who, have been who have been vaccinated, and they seem to transmit with less efficacy or from the virus's perspective. That is, people who have been vaccinated seem to transmit less than somebody who 
is infected who was not vaccinated. So there appears to be something about being vaccinated that is helpful in terms of preventing people from getting infected, but it's very short-lived. But a little longer-lived is protection against spreading it. Uh, probably not a very satisfying answer for you, Matt, but um, yeah, sometimes science uh, is, is less than completely satisfactory as to its level of certainty. Dr. Schwartzberg, the, the clock has run out on us. Thank you so much for run, spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.